Well, hey, welcome here. Uh, welcome to all of you who are joining us at uh, each one of our campuses, uh, Central Abbey, East Abbey, Mission. It's great to have you with us. Grab your Bibles. Uh, you should know this by now. We are in the Gospel of John, and we're going to pick up uh, where we left off last week. Actually, do a little bit of an overlap into last week's text and then head on into uh, the next chunk of Scripture. So the brain is a funny thing, is it not, in uh, the weird and wonderful things that you remember, uh, random bits of information that you wonder, why do I recall my address when I was six years old? Phone numbers, postal codes, uh, names and faces of people that you haven't seen for years and yet you can't remember the names of the people you you met yesterday. It's also interesting that there are these one-liners that are kind of in the cultural vernacular, if you will. And even though you may have not even been born when they were first stated, you know them, you're aware of them. Uh, If I had rattle off a few, I could say, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And many of you would know who said that and what wall he was talking about, even if you weren't born then. Uh, Or another statement, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Uh, I wasn't born then, but I know that statement. There's one that the vast majority listening to this message were not born yet, and that is embedded in our minds. This is a day that will remain in infamy. Anyone know what that one's from? December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Most listening to this message were not alive for that. Uh, Also interesting, uh, the movie one-liners, they just get stuck in your head, right? And whether or not you've seen the movies or not, there's a lot of these one-lighters in the vernacular of our culture that if I throw them out there, you will have heard them. Whether or not you've heard the movie or not, you had me at hello. It's just a flesh wound. Who remembers that one? Monty Python, of course. Go ahead, make my day. May the force be with you. If we build it, they will come. Makuna Matata. Bare necessities. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood today. I don't know if our family's a little strange. Maybe there's other families like ours. We sometimes speak to one another in movie lines. And if you're having a family dinner at the Birch family household, inevitably someone will say, these potatoes are so creamy. You may not have a clue what movie that comes from, but it's one embedded in our memories. Or, mark my words, those are the kind that put strychnine in the well. Anyone know that one? There you go. Anna Green Gables. And when you're leaving a family gathering, in fact, uh, last weekend our son was out and I was headed to church and he sent me off with his normal greeting, have fun storming the castle. As I work through this week's text, and we're going to read and you'll hear a little bit of frustration in Jesus' voice. I don't know why, but it popped into my brain and I thought, I wonder if we have been guilty of doing the same thing to Jesus that that annoying little boy did to Shrek and Shrek ever after. Do the roar. Do the roar. As we read the text, maybe you'll understand. Maybe you'll see it too. So we're picking up from where we left off last weekend, dovetailing back into the story of the woman at the well. And it says there in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So the question rolling through the back of my mind this week as I'm studying this text is I wonder whether we've made Jesus into a celebrity and his church into a celebrity circus. Because this text really contrasts, I think, simple faith the simple faith of this father who believed Jesus' word, acted on it, and believed in him versus the celebrity sensation of those who came wanting to see the signs and wonders. Uh, so let's just remind ourselves of the context. And if you've missed a few weeks or you've not been in the text, just remind you of the time and the place and the people. So the first 12 chapters of John are sometimes called a book of signs. And there are two series of signs. There's signs that are bookended with Jesus being in a little village called Cana. And then beginning in chapter Five, there is another series of signs wrapped around the Jewish festivals. So we're bookending those first signs from Cana, the water into wine. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. He cleanses the temple. He does other teaching and other signs, we're told, because Nicodemus comes to him and says, we've seen all these signs that you've done. No one could do these signs unless they were sent by God. And they have a conversation, and then he interacts with John the Baptist. He interacts with the Pharisees. He and his disciples stay after the Passover. They begin to baptize in the countryside around Jerusalem. His popularity is growing. His reputation is spreading. And so does the harassment from the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Until Jesus is like, you know what, let's get back under the radar a bit. Let's pass through Samaria, because more than likely, the Pharisees who have been harassing him will not follow him into Samaria, lest they become unclean. And so he avoids the harassment for a season. And then he spends a couple days in Samaria, as we just read, and we find him now back in Galilee, and he is welcomed, quote-unquote. Welcomed by these people who, as he mentions, had formerly mocked him, questioned him, rejected him, his own hometown. Now welcome. Uh, so the place is Cana. It's just a tiny little village. And if you pulled out a first century map of Galilee, you would, you would get to know a little bit of the lay of the land in Israel, that Galilee is 80 to 100 miles north of Jerusalem, depending on what part of Galilee you end up landing in. 
And remember Jesus' biography, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, moved to Capernaum as an adult. At the end of chapter two, we see uh, after the wedding and the wine, that Jesus goes to Capernaum with his brothers and his mother. Obviously by now, Capernaum is hometown. And Capernaum is a place where Jesus will circle back to again and again during his ministry years, coming back to Galilee, but specifically coming back to Capernaum. Now, the distance between Nazareth and Cana is not very far. The town he grew up in, and he's just a few miles away. It's just five, maybe six miles. It would be like today if you're in Claiborne Village, or let's go back in time when there's no Abbotsford, there's no Clearbrook. There's just Claiborne Village, and then down near the border, there's a Huntington Village, nothing in between. That's about the distance between Cana and Nazareth. It's not far. You can walk it in, you know, a little bit over an hour, hour and a half. The distance, however, between Cana and Capernaum is greater. It's 20 miles. It's at least a long day's walk, eight hours, depending on how quickly you walk. It's the distance from Abbey to Chilliwack. Uh, How many of you walked to Chilliwack lately? It's going to take you at least eight hours, even if you walk at a really brisk pace. The people in the story, the Samaritans and the Galileans, Jesus and a nobleman. So the story starts in Samaria. Remember the history we talked about last week, these these distant cousins and yet the great animosity, literally the hatred between them based on both racism and religious animosity between them. And now Jesus arrives back in Galilee and he lands at Cana, this little village, and the word gets around that Jesus is back We understand a little bit why, because it said many of these people had been in Jerusalem. They had seen the signs and wonders that he did in Jerusalem. Now he's back in his hometown, and you can imagine the gossip. Remember the stories that we told you about at Passover? Remember what we saw and heard down there? Well, that guy is back. He's here in town. And the word starts to spread, and it spreads at least as far as Capernaum, 20 miles away, because in a matter of a few days or weeks, perhaps, a nobleman, a bureaucrat with a sick son, makes his way from Capernaum to Cana, walks the seven or eight hours by foot. Now, who this nobleman is, this official, we don't really know, and I guess for the most part it doesn't really matter, but I want to just talk about him a little bit. Uh, Various translations uh, interpret it different ways. He's simply called an official. Some say a royal official. If you read the King James, he's called the nobleman. It's partly because it's a difficult word to translate into English because we have no equivalent. It's the Greek word basilicus, and it literally means of the royal household or of the king's house. But there was no king in Galilee specifically because the last king officially was Herod the Great, who ruled over all of Israel. So think back to the birth of Jesus, uh, the Magi coming to worship him, the shepherds, uh, the building of Herod's temple, the massacre of the innocents. That's Herod the Great at the beginning of the New Testament. But he dies. And when he dies, the kingdom is divided up into four regions, and four of his sons take a quarter share each. They become tetrarchs. A quarter share. Uh, as you're reading through your New Testament, maybe I don't know if you've stumbled on this, you come across at least six men by the name of Herod. And you're like, this is confusing to me. They're all related. They, they've come from the family chain of, of Herod the Great. It, it's, it's a little bit like trying to figure out Mennonite family trees. Like, just give it up. Like, why do you even try? Like, what's with all these rhymers and redicops? And the toves or the taves. What is that? The toves or the taves. Uh, we have a friend 
she was a froze and she married a freezing. She said it was so much warmer. <laughs> Boo. It's not my joke, it's hers. One of Herod's sons was governor over Galilee South. Herod Antipas. And he wasn't really a king, he was just a quarter king, but he let the people call him king. Herod Antipas, he is the guy who hated John the Baptist and had him, had him beheaded. Okay, you're like, does it matter? Well, yes and no. Maybe not, but maybe it does. It doesn't really change the main point of the story, but think it through just a little bit. Just rest there. You need to do this with Scripture. Just chew on it a little bit. If this man is the king's man, if he's a nobleman who actually works for Herod Antipas, Herod who hates John the Baptist and fears Jesus, it raises the level of drama in this story just a little bit. There's a little more intrigue going on. There's a little bit of Agatha Christie thrown in here. Hey, boss, I need a day off. I don't know why he sounds like a mobster, but in my mind, he's a mobster. Boss, I need a day off. Why? It's the middle of the week. Why do you need a day off? I got some business in Cana. Cana? Cana's in the middle of nowhere. It's a tiny little village. It's Claiborne Village, for goodness sake. Why would you be going to Cana? And finally, the truth comes out. I'm going to see that healer named Jesus because my boy is dying. Now, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But if he worked for Herod and he had to make this trip and all in, it was a three-day return trip because he travels, he meets Jesus, he's back there. He has to take some time off work. How much did Herod know before and or after? But regardless of who he is, his title tells us that he's powerful, he's influential, and more than likely, he's wealthy. And the contrast, I think, is striking, and I think it's intriguing, and I think it's on purpose. You have a nobleman coming to the carpenter for healing, a powerful man coming to the weak for help. Now, the story's pretty straightforward. We'll just run through it. We pick up with Jesus leaving Samaria after two fruitful days of ministry, and John weaves together a story of contrast in this three-part story. We see that Jesus was accepted and not rejected back in Samaria, where we would have expected him to be rejected. Instead, the Samaritans received and believed in his word. Then we see him welcomed, but not really, because as we read through the text, we'll realize it was spoken with irony. As John 1, 1.11 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The only reason they welcomed him, the text tells us, verse 45, is because they've seen the miracles down in Jerusalem. And then he is tested and he is trusted by the nobleman. Verse 53 reminds us that this nobleman not only pursued him, was interested in him, but he accepted, he believed, he trusted, and he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. You need to notice the patterns. There's this interesting pattern in John's writing. Accepted, rejected, accepted. There's insider, Nicodemus, outsider, woman at the well. Insiders, Galileans, outsiders, noblemen. I think John does this on purpose. It's pivoting back and forth. And the story's pretty simple. A father who has a sick boy who's on the verge of death. Now, many of you as parents can share your own stories. 
For Carolyn and I, there are two significant stories that immediately come into mind when I think of a sick child. And, and one was when our little girl's about two. We're living out on the Sumas Flats. It's the middle of the winter. She's got a fever. She's throwing up. There's stuff coming out of both ends. We can't keep anything in her, but you're young parents. We didn't have a doctor. It's the middle of the winter, so you do your best to keep her fever down, put her in a cool bath, and hope that she gets better. But eventually, she can't swallow anything, can't keep anything down. She seems to be fading into some sort of a delirium. So we finally load up the car, and we head to the hospital in Chilliwack. And the words that we were met with shocked me as a dad when they told us in the ER, we're so glad you came. If you had left it a couple more hours, she wouldn't have made it. I was shocked by that. A couple years later, as our little boy reaches up and pulls a boiling pot of water off the stove onto himself. And as we find ourselves standing at his bed in the burn unit as he's slathered up with all this white cream and his body in shock and wondering, how, will he recover? Will he be scarred for life? Will he be able to use that hand that he had dipped in that pot? We understand a little bit of the feeling that this dad must have felt his little boy has a fever. He's on the verge of death. He is helpless and he is hopeless. And so he goes to the one that he thinks can heal him. He's at the end of the rope. And Jesus' response actually looks pretty callous and hard, doesn't it? Pretty abrupt. Jesus, could you come down and heal my boy? And he says, unless you see signs and wonders. Now, it's significant that we need to note there, and some of your Bibles, probably like mine, have a note there, that unless you see signs and wonders, verse 48, is actually the plural. In fact, some translations say it, unless you people, because that's really what it says. Jesus is talking to the crowd. The nobleman comes to him, but there's a crowd about. And he turns and he speaks to all of them, all y'all. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. So he's speaking in the plural to the crowd. It's like he brushes this guy off. But the official either just ignores Jesus or just keeps pressing right on through. And it's like, I don't know about any of the rest of these people. I don't know what they came here for. I don't know what they're expecting to see from you. But Jesus, I got one request. Come down and heal my boy. And Jesus responds. And almost with a one-word response, go. Just go. He's already on the mend. Go. And the man trusts him. There's no questions there's no debates, there's no if, and, or buts, there's no clarifications, it just says the man turns and he's on his way. He believes that in that simple word that Jesus spoke, go, and he trusts him. Now between verse 50 and 51, a night passes. We get the evidence later when he he talks to his servants. Remember, it's a seven or eight hour walk. It's one in the afternoon. It gets dark by six. You don't want to be walking after dark. He makes it part way. The next morning, he's carrying on and his servants come and they're meeting him coming toward Canaan. And then there's this conversation. Hey, forget about your question to the master because your boy's getting better. And he's like, yeah, but when did he start getting better? Yesterday at one o'clock. And he knows it's in that moment that Jesus had spoken, he will be well. And the man believes, he places his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He and his entire household, we're told. So that's the story. It's pretty simple. And what I want to do is just make four observations about the story, and then I want to give you four takeaways that you might consider taking with you. The first observation is this, the power of the word 
and testimony. And the question of how God brings salvation, how God decides who gets saved, how God decides when his spirit is going to move. Because I sometimes find myself asking the question, Lord, why don't you show up in powerful ways in our day? Because we know if in a moment you chose to blow across this nation by your spirit, we know that you have the power that every man, woman, and boy and girl would be on their face in worship. We know this, Lord. Because we know that whenever the glory of the Lord shows up, that's what happens to people. They end up on their faces in worship. So God, why aren't you doing this? And in this is this mystery that while God could, he chooses other means. And he makes it so clear. In fact, when we get to John 6, he will reiterate, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. Nobody will bend the knee to me on their own unless the Father, by his Spirit, draws them. And yet, all the way through the New Testament, God includes the human agency of the word being proclaimed. Romans 10, there's this really interesting comment. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you're like, yes and amen. Hallelujah. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. But then it asks a series of questions. They're like, but how can they call on one that they've never heard about? And how can they hear about him unless somebody preaches to them? And then the paragraph ends with this statement, because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so people will sometimes ask the question, can God save outside the word? Can God save without a Bible? Can people be saved without hearing the name of Jesus? And at first, it sounds really intriguing. And it's, yeah, let's have a coffee and argue about that. Can he? Well, on one hand, you say he's God. And he sits in the heavenlies. He's enthroned in the heavenlies, we're told. And he does as he pleases. That he reigns over all creation. And so, can he? Of course, he can, I suppose. But the better question, the more relevant question might be, does he? Does he save or will he save outside the word, outside the Bible, outside faith in Jesus Christ? And friends, this is where we need to be categorically clear because it is not clear in our day. We must be categorically clear that the biblical answer is a firm no. The biblical answer is no, that there is not salvation outside Jesus Christ. So John 14, 6, Jesus will later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me, the exclusive claims of Christ. When the apostles start preaching, Acts 4, neither is there salvation in any other name, because there is no other name under heaven whereby you can be saved but the name of Jesus. Uh, Paul, when he is writing to the Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the declaration that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that there is no way for you to be right with God except through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. The scandal of the cross, that he would lay his life down in your place. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that scandalous message. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So in this text, we see this principle that all the way through the New Testament is affirmed that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And you go, where are you looking at? Well, the woman at the well shares her word of testimony. But that testimony does not save these people. 
That testimony intrigues these people and it brings them to Jesus. And then it says, we don't believe because of what you said to us. We believe because we heard his words. We heard the word of Jesus and we understand it, that he is the savior of the world. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And if we take nothing else from this text, we should take with us as Bible-believing believers, the comfort and the courage at the power of God's word, the necessity and the sufficiency of the word of God. It's like building an altar. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the lives of your kids or in the lives of your friends, that we just keep throwing dry wood on that altar and then we pray that the spirit of God sets it aflame. Amen? Secondly is the danger of familiarity. The contrast in the story is striking. These people who knew Jesus most intimately, who had watched him grow up in his home area, Nazareth, Cana, Galilee, and yet they didn't recognize him. They didn't see it and they didn't believe it. And I think it is the great danger for us in the Western world, specifically the great danger for us in North America, that we can become so familiar with the things of God that we lose sight of the things of God and we don't actually see and hear anymore. Someone has said it's four generations slipping from the gospel. One generation believes the gospel. The next generation just assumes the gospel. The third generation forgets the gospel, and by the fourth, they have rejected and walked away from the gospel. We're told here they welcomed him, but that is a statement of irony. It's like back in chapter 2, 23, uh, when it said after all the signs and wonders that he had done, that many believed in him, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. We looked at that a few weeks ago. They believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew what was in their heart. He knew that this was not true belief. He, He knew the same thing was happening here. Hey, Jesus, I saw you in Jerusalem. A lot of these people went to the feast. They're like, Jesus, oh my goodness, Jesus, what a week that was. No Passover like I've ever remembered was like that Passover, Jesus. I can't remember enjoying a Passover celebration like this one. Oh my goodness, the city was buzzing. Everywhere I went, people were looking for you. They were talking about you. Jesus, you're really something. I sure hope you're going to do something like that here, Jesus. You see, right there is where that line from Shrek bumped into my brain. Because I think what these people were doing was exactly what that little boy in Shrek. Do the roar! Do the roar, Jesus! Do the roar. Because that phrase, signs and wonders, appears several times in not only John's Gospels, but all of the other Gospels as well. And almost always, in fact, almost exclusively, it is used with a negative slant. Take note of that. When you're reading through the Gospels and you see the phrase signs, and particularly signs and wonders, it is almost always used with a negative slant because it is almost always somebody coming to him demanding that Jesus do something miraculous for them. And Jesus says to them, you're only coming to see me because you want something of the show. You want some miracles. You don't really believe. We'll come back to this again. John chapter 6, Jesus rebukes some people there, and he says, the only reason you're following me is because you were at the feeding of the 5,000. You're only coming for the free food. You came because you ate the bread, and you're hoping that there will be more of that. Uh, Chapter 7, it says his brothers didn't even believe in him, and yet his brothers keep hanging around. 
They keep following him. It's like, no, we don't believe him, but they're always hanging around, watching to see what Jesus is going to do. Herod himself, this is quite interesting. When you get to the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is now before Pilate. It's just before his crucifixion. Pilate's trying to get off the hook. He doesn't find any fault in Jesus to crucify him. He hears that he's a Galilean, and he knows that Herod, Herod Antipas, is in town, the Galilean Tetrarch. And so he sends him to Herod, and it says this, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Herod, King Herod, is very glad. Why? For a long time, he desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Was he wanting to believe in him? Was he wanting to follow him? Was he wanting to bend his knee and worship to him? Was he wanting to surrender his life, give him the keys, the driver's seat? No. He simply wanted some signs and wonders. Third observation is the blessing of simple obedience. And I'm not going to belabor the point here, but it is so simple and yet it is so hard this nobleman comes to Jesus and he's given a simple word, a very simple word, go. Go, your son is well. And in that moment, the nobleman had a choice to make. Remember, he's coming from the seat of power. He's the king's man. He's the official. So he comes with some level of authority. We, we might imagine that he might have even been able to say, in the name of the king, you're coming to Capernaum. I'm coming to abduct you and take you home under the authority that I have as a royal servant. He was more than likely wealthy. So he could have said, hey, Jesus, can I give you some money? Can I buy a miracle for my son? He's influential. Of course he's influential. So he could have said, hey, Jesus, if you do this favor for me, I can get you connected with the right people. I can maybe even get you an audience with the king. Do you want to go to the halls of parliament, to the legislature? You want to speak to the voice of power? I can get you in those doors. Jesus, just do me a favor. But instead, the nobleman comes with humility to the carpenter. The strong coming to the weak, the wealthy coming to the poor. And when the carpenter gives him one simple task, go, he believes it and he receives it. And so the question, of course, is are we quick to obey? Are we quick to respond? Are we quick to follow? Has simple obedience become too rare in our lifetime? Do we want to bargain with Jesus? I'll meet you halfway, Jesus. Or Jesus, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. And then finally, fourth observation, and we're going to circle back to verse 45. Meanwhile, back at the show. And as much as I'd like to say that human nature grows and changes over the centuries, it seems that there's this insatiable desire for the sensational. So just as much as Jesus sent this man and his son was healed, the others are waiting for signs and wonders, not so much substance. Something hip and cool versus faithful and fruitful. Uh, we do it in our day. We want to give Jesus a facelift. Make him a little bit more palatable. You know what? Jesus, he's, uh, he's into the environment, environmental Jesus. Social justice Jesus, he's all about that. Uh, adapt the word for modern ears. Make it relevant. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But it's just this observation that in the middle of simple faith of the one man, 
You've got a crowd that is clamoring for Jesus to do the roar, hungry for signs and wonders. And, and so what is it about human nature that wants to elevate a person or a ministry? That wants to be something, uh, part of something newer, bigger, better, shinier, faster, that discounts the path of long obedience in the same direction, longing for the highs of the spiritual mountaintop. And I wonder, friends, if the Lord's waiting to pour out his spirit, waiting for the church to get into a position of humility and willingness to receive and to quickly obey. Because the human tendency is to hear those words and by like, bring it on, Lord, do it here, please do it here. I can tell you a ton of stories. We lived in Kelowna during a, a season of quote unquote awakening. It was back in the days of the Toronto blessing and Probably many of you know about that and others you don't. It doesn't really matter. But as we observed from a, a sister church across town, what I was blown away with was the people literally traveling from all across North America to come to little dinky Kelowna because somehow they had to get to Kelowna to get under the Spirit of God. And there were some cool things that happened. We have some friends that were deeply, deeply impacted through this movement. But there was also a lot of weird and wacky and wonky theology in the midst of it. And it's really easy to critique people like that, but when I look at my own backyard, when I look at the circles and the friends that I hang out with and the conversations we have, I wonder if we don't play the same game. Paul faced it at Corinth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. How often do we do it? John Piper, he's my man. John MacArthur, Tim Keller, Al Mohler. Oh man, have you read Jen Wilkin and Rebecca McLaughlin? They're awesome. All those people are being deeply used by God. But sometimes I wonder if we have lost our love for the Savior and become enamored with the bright lights of Christian celebrity. So let me give you a little confession as a pastor. It's always good for the soul. It is a challenging day to do ministry in North America right now for lots of reasons, but one of them is this, that it is not just the dead preachers you're competing with anymore. It's not just Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and Tozer and those who wrote great books and are now long dead. But because of the World Wide Web and podcasts and blogs and Instagram and Facebook, the Christian marketplace of fame and celebrity and novelty is just a click of the button away. And so pastors today live under immense pressure to perform. Immense pressure to preach like the very best. And I, I wonder if it's why so many preachers are giving up and quitting and saying, you know what, I can't do it anymore. I can't compete I got a phone call a few weeks ago. It was an interesting call from a man who said, you know what, I visited your church and I was frankly a skeptic. And I just want to say thank you for what we experienced. And he went on to tell me a bit of his story. They were visiting from the prairies. Small town, small church. He's been to a few big churches, didn't like most of them. They're visiting Abbotsford and his friends unfortunately attend Northview. And they dragged him to church. And he came with low expectations. But he said, what blew me away is that there were no light shows, no fog machines. You seem like pretty simple people. There was just good music. Jesus was lifted up in worship. There was a solid Bible message, and then we were sent out. And he said, thanks. Now, I don't tell you that story so that we can pat ourselves on the back. I tell you that story for this reason. 
As I got off that call, I wondered to myself, why is this strange? What has church become that it is all about the lights and music and the fog machines? The entertainment factor and the striving to be hip and cool and relevant and I will never be, believe me. That we have to somehow be a viable alternative to all the world has to offer that we have to dress it up or dumb it down or people won't listen. Offend no one, be politically correct, ruffle no feathers, toe the party line, give people what they want or they will go down the street. A question I ask is, have we been guilty of doing the same that these people were doing? Jesus, do the roar. What's on the agenda this weekend? Let me give you four quick takeaway statements. We got to land this baby. Tell me your story. When's the last time you had a simple conversation about faith with a friend? When you said, you know what, tell me what God's done in your life, like the Samaritan told her story. When's the last time that you said, you know what, tell me your story. What kind of a home were you raised in? Was God honored or not honored? When did you first hear the name of Jesus? When did it begin to make sense for you? When did the spirit begin to stir in your heart? So instead of talking about the weather or politics or the U.S. election or the economy or the war in Ukraine or the war in our streets or the Canucks or the Jays or the Lions... And instead of people, 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 from Elon Musk to Tanta Zelma, what if we took it a layer deeper and said, you know what? I've never heard your story. Can you tell me your story? Secondly, would we use the phrase, make your word live to me a little bit more? I heard this phrase first from a man from Scotland who had immigrated to the States, and he ended up being one of my favorite preachers, a guy named Alistair Begg. I was at a conference, he read his text, he was going to preach, in his thick Scottish brogue, and then he prayed, and he prayed something like this, oh God, we have read your word, and we confess that unless you open our eyes, we will remain blind. Unless you fill us, we will be empty, and unless you make your word live, it will remain just words on the paper. So, Lord, make your word live to me. Can I challenge you? Would you do that daily? As you open your Bible in your personal devotional life, as you come to a Bible study or a community group, as you prepare your heart to come to the gathering of God's people, would you begin to say those words again and again and again, moment by moment and day by day? Lord, make your word live to me. Thirdly, I think we need to say, forgive me, Lord, more often, forgive us. That in so many areas of our lives, of course, Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is repentance. We live daily getting things right with God. But specific to this context, I wonder and I think, do we have some confession to make here in North America about how we have viewed the church, the word, the gospel, music, evangelism, celebrity, and leadership? We have seen way too many Christian leaders fall and fail. And I wonder if many of them have not fallen in part because of the pressure that we have unknowingly put on them by putting them on a pedestal of celebrity, of notoriety, of demanding from them that they get on the speaking circuit and they publish the bestsellers list. Oh God, would you forgive us 
where we've made too much of ourselves and too little of you, God. And finally, the fourth word, and as much as it might sound upside down to everything I've just said, I firmly believe that we need to be saying more often, pour out your spirit, Lord. Not just pour out signs and wonders, because he still does miracles today. But Lord, let the simple preaching of the word be met with tears as hearts are cut to the quick. And Lord, in the simple victories of day to day and in the joys of life, that we'll rejoice in you. That in a worship service that booms with shouts of celebration or hushed in the sweet presence and awe of a holy God, we will rejoice. That we won't put boxes around you to say what you can and cannot do, God. We won't demand a certain emotion, a certain feeling, a certain response, a, a certain spiritual buzz or sensation. We will humbly open our lives. We will empty ourselves and we will cry out, Holy Spirit, fill me. Last week, as we looked at the woman, I asked you the question, what well have you been drinking at? What have you been chasing that you think satisfies? And the answer, of course, is only the living water that Jesus has to give us will satisfy. Amen. And the truth is, friends, Jesus does do signs and wonders still yet today. But the greatest sign he gave us was his very life. His perfect life laid down on our behalf. And on another occasion, Jesus being pressed by the Pharisees, again demanding signs and wonders, said to them, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. But he will walk away fully alive. And if you're here and you're wondering what sign has Jesus given you, what wonder has he given you that you should place your trust in him? What power does he have? What work has he done? Then just look at the perfect life of Jesus. Laid down voluntarily when he walked the hill to Calvary, where the sins of the world were placed on the sinless one. Look at his body, broken. Broken for our sins and absorbing the wrath of God in our place, standing in the place of our penalty for our rebellion, not for his own sin. And then also look, friend, to the empty tomb. That he paid the penalty for sin and he also broke the power of sin. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And his current reign at the Father's right hand. It's all the sign we need. 1 John 3, 1, how great the Father's love that he has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, would you forgive us when we have stumbled into the pressure of our culture, a bigger and better and faster and shinier bells and whistles, signs and wonders. When we have come to you to not receive humbly and to simply obey, to trust and obey, but when we've come to you wanting the next spiritual high, the next spiritual buzz. Lord, would you make us more like the nobleman who when you said go, your son is well. That in simple trust and obedience, we place our faith in you and we say, if Jesus said it, that settles it. It's good enough for me. 
And Lord Jesus, may we always remember, despite all the prayers that we pray for healings and for miracles and for you to show up in power in our day, that the greatest sign that you ever gave us was when you took our sin to the cross of Calvary when you did not need to. You were not the sinful one. You were the sinless one. And yet you carried our burdens to take and pay the penalty for our sin, to do what we could not do, what we were powerless to do for ourselves so that we can live lives full and free and abundant, forgiven, the power of sin broken, and ultimately, Lord, the presence of sin will be banished. Oh, God, seal these words in our heart. How great your love that you've lavished on us, that we could be called children of God. Amen.